This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the most advanced technology combined with market-leading content and West's history of trusted editorial excellence. Helping legal professionals save time is what they've been doing for over 125 years. Learn more at westlawnext.com. Resume writing. It's something few people enjoy, but many want to know how to do it better. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward of the ABA Journal, and today I'm discussing the do's and don'ts of resume writing with Joe Ankis and Valerie Fontaine, two legal search consultants. I have a question for both of you. Do you find that candidates often undersell themselves on their resumes? Valerie, what do you think? Um, I think the, the issue is more people overselling themselves on resumes. We don't want people puffing. What's most important is people be absolutely honest about everything they put on their resume and not try to exaggerate or puff. Sometimes we see people undersell. I think the case also is people not being clear about presenting all of their qualifications in the best light. Valerie, can you give me some examples of you seeing where people overpuff on their resume? Well, one of the things that I see is, uh, and then we may get into this a little bit later about uh, grade point average when they're putting down, you know, last semester of first year top 10%, you know, to give the impression they were top 10%. I also have similarly, uh, one of my friends from law school put she was in the uh, top 99%, and it gave the impression she was in the top 1%, but truthfully she was in the bottom of the class. <laughs> All right. And, and Joe, what do you think about that question? I think, I, yeah, underselling is, is really, <laughs> unfortunately, never been a problem. It's, 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 as Valerie said, it's the overselling which creates most of the issues. You know, kind of a corollary example is the candidate that will say to you as a recruiter, well, which version of the resume would you like? Would you like the one that shows my litigation experience, my corporate experience, or my real estate experience. <laughs> and I get a little nervous <laughs> because I'm like, well, what are you? <laughs> and mm-hmm. what you find is is that, generally speaking, candidates, to promote themselves, and I understand why they do it, they may tend to exaggerate by using vague kind of ambiguous phrases to imply that they've done more than they've really done. For example, like what? Uh, for example, a litigator may say, you know, extensive pre-trial and motion experience. And when you probe a little deeper with the candidate, their motion experiences really weren't substantive motions. They were, you know, motions for extension of time, motions to compel, very rudimentary, basic type things. Their pretrial experience was limited to going to a calendar call, and an experienced right. recruiter is going to ferret through that, and, and you'll find that we would might consider that kind of a puffery, as Valerie said, or an overstatement. You know? What I love is participated in depositions, and that meant they listened, they watched. <laughs> it, you, you've mm-hmm. got to be careful of the ambiguities in a resume, and a good recruiter is going to drill down and, and ask the tough questions to figure out whether their skill set is reflective of what the client needs. 
So it's, say you see someone that puts in their resume extensive pretrial experience. In other words, what that tells you is this person has never tried a case. Well, we, we don't know. What, what, what it tells us is, is we need to ask more questions because mm -hmm. invariably clients of Valerie's or clients of mine are going to ask us as the intermediary, you know, Joe, we told you this is a fairly trial-intensive position. You know, the candidate seems to indicate it. We as recruiters are going to try to vet that from the candidate when we speak to them and say, you know, tell me exactly how many trials have you sat first chair on, how many trials have you sat second chair on, et cetera. And how many depositions have you taken? Have you defended? Have you argued dispositive motions? Please tell me about that. Have you um, handled mediations and arbitrations on your own? How many? That sort of thing. Yeah, we, we drill down, basically. That's our job is to drill down. Well, I'm curious. Say you're a younger, excuse me, a younger lawyer who wants to get more into litigation, but you, do, you you have this experience, as you mentioned. Would you be better off to put in your objective statement what you'd like to do and couple that with what you have done, but be more honest about what you have done? Well, we can talk about objectives. Um, I am not a huge fan of objective statements. First of all, in the hiring process, it's what a candidate can do for the client. It's not what the candidate wants from the client or wants mm -hmm. from the employer. So you're trying to sell what you can do for the client. So it's not, I want to be a litigator. So objective statements uh, often are so vague as to be completely meaningless or they're written obviously to mirror the, the requirements of a particular job and that's just a little ingenuous, I would say, or disingenuous, I'm sorry, I would say. So I, I'm not a great fan of objective statements. I think it's a waste of valuable real estate on a resume. What I'd rather see is a summary, especially for a more senior lawyer, to put down um, experienced trial lawyer with significant first chair trial experience, that sort of thing, or if they're an IP lawyer, IP lawyer with uh, X number of years of actual industry experience or something like that. I'll jump in. I, I agree with Valerie. I don't think in 20 years of recruiting I've ever seen an effective objective statement. The summary, if appropriate, is the way to go. Many times candidates will use outdated, outmoded resume formats that they get from, you know, one only knows where. A book, the Internet, heaven knows. And, and, and they'll have on their objective statement. You generally, lawyer resumes are slightly different creatures than a, you know, middle-level management kind of mainstream managerial-type level positioning statements. It's, it's, it's different. We, you don't see too many lawyers having objective statements, and I've never seen, like I said, I've never, I can't recall seeing one that, that wasn't vague and, and really just, as Valerie said, takes away from valuable real estate on a resume. Right. I mean, it's very clear when someone looks at a lawyer resume, this is a lawyer resume, because if you're a junior person, you're putting your education at the top, it starts with JD. If you're a senior person, you're starting with your experience, and it shows partner at X law firm or of counsel or senior associate, litigation, whatever. It's clear immediately. It's not like a, um, some sort of executive position that they want to know, are you going to be doing sales or, I don't product development or whatever. It's clear you're a lawyer. All right. Besides the objective statements, what are some things you see on lawyer resumes that perhaps would be better left off? 
well, there's, there's certain core things that I, I certainly recommend leaving off a resume because I think they're kind of anachronistic, which is the old format of resumes used to have things like health, excellent, marital status, you know, married, things that were just simply even photographs of the candidate, things which just in this day and age simply just not only are they, in my opinion, unacceptable, they're, they, they detract and actually can probably damage a candidate's candidacy. It just doesn't make sense. That's something I would leave off. The and they're not legal to be asked about anyway, and they shouldn't be relevant. Yeah, it, it, it should be off the resume. And do you find people that still submit things like that, though? Yeah. You oh. do, but again, it's because they're misguided. It's not that they're bad people. They're misguided, and again, they're using outdated, outmoded, archaic forms that they dredged up from somewhere. The more weighty question about things to leave off are, ironically, things like hobbies and interests where you can actually strike a raw chord or build a positive rapport, and this is one of matter of personal choice. By way of example, I enjoy metal detecting, which is kind of an esoteric hobby, and in an interview many years ago, I had people ask me about it with genuine curiosity and interest, and I had one particular interview with a large firm where the person didn't even bother to look at anything except my interest, jumped on it and said, my spouse is a historic preservationist, and my understanding is you folks go into historical sites and loot all the relics. Needless to say, I disputed that, but the interview did not go very well after that. And despite having a good resume, that interest caught, that was what the focal point of the meeting was. So if you have even something as innocuous as a hobby, it could get you in more hot water than one would lead to be believed. Um, Political affiliations, things like that can really be hot buttons, which can help or significantly hurt you. I'm sorry. I wanted to talk about some specific things in addition, unless you uh, had a follow-up question to have at it, Valerie. Okay. Some of the other things I would like to see left off resumes is words like I or mine or whatever. I mean, or Mr. Jones is responsible for. I mean, the resume is about you. So you don't have to use personal pronouns. You don't have to have full sentences. Just state what it is you need to state, like handle business litigation from inception through settlement, trial, or appeal, something like that. Also, excessive abbreviations or acronyms, you can use the ones that are widely understood, like JD. You don't have to use a lot of spacing, Juris Doctorate. You can say LLM or um, state abbreviations, ABA, stuff like that. We can talk a little bit about unrelated college or law school jobs or other jobs. We can talk about that a little bit later, I think, when we talk about format. But also, I would say unexceptional honors. You know, the who's who's books, I don't think that impresses anybody, and that is a waste of real estate. If you were on the dean's list uh, six semesters, that's fine if that's the only honor you had in, co- in college or law school. But if you were coy for magna cum laude or summa cum laude, that's subsumed. It's assumed you're on the dean's list. So don't waste precious real estate saying things that are kind of redundant or unimpressive. And high school, sometimes people put their high school on there, and, you know, that's ancient history, even if you're a brand-new law student. Well, if you are a young lawyer, to what extent should you talk about undergraduate achievements? No, undergraduate achievements are fine if there's something that show academic excellence or leadership, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Those scholarships or 
awards, perhaps? Right, right. And, you know, as you get more senior and you have more things to put on your resume, those things will fall off. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes and it, the I, I'm in two minds about honors like uh, super lawyer because I don't haven't seen that make a difference in getting a job. But if you have other things you can put there, you, it's, it's kind of you have to make a value judgment over what's most important to present, what's going to be most impressive or be more of more interest to the particular employer you're approaching. And I'll, I'll add a couple points to that. Um, one thing which is really critical for the audience to understand is, is about GPA, when to put the GPA on and when to leave the GPA off. And I have been surprised sometimes to get a resume and there will be no GPA for either undergrad or law school. And kind of the presumption among recruiters is if a GPA is left off, the presumption is it's below a 3.0. And obviously, if it's above a 3.0, you should put it on the resume kind of as a kind of a bright line test. And many times I have had candidates with GPAs of 3.5s, 3.6s um, in both law school and undergraduate that, that have left it off the resume. And they said, well, I, I just thought they wanted to know where that where I got my JD from. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean – you, you've just put a presumption up that it's below a 3.0. So I hope the audience understands if you've got above a 3.0, my recommendation is get that on the resume for sure because otherwise people are going to be thinking that you have a resume, a GPA below the 3.0. Or a true top third, something like that. I mean, if we're talking ranks. Well, what about for lawyers of more experience? I mean, if you're 15 years out, did you really put your GPA if it's above a 3? It I never would. goes away. <laughs> Yeah, I would. Okay. I would. I, I, I think there's absolutely no reason if you have done well to leave it off. I can't see any reason to leave it off, no. I mean, the, the, as you get more senior, you can maybe take off your some of your scholarships perhaps, um, unless you're like, you know, if you have things like Rhodes Scholar or Fulbright Scholar, those things belong on forever. Of course. The thing about lawyer resumes that are very different than, I would say, business resumes is that lawyers are snooty and snobby and about education. They're credential conscience, conscious, and it doesn't go away. It, it follows you throughout your career. There's a couple observations I'll make about this point. Many times clients have actually said to me, you know, I wouldn't hire myself now, which goes to Valerie's point about being credential conscious. I've heard that many times. But two things that, that some of the audience should consider, two points. Number one is if they work through college or work through law school full or part-time, I, I think that is something which should go on the resume. I think it shows that they were able to balance both professional and academic obligations at the Oh, that's time. interesting. How would you characterize that on the resume? Um, I think it could be parent, almost a parenthetical, and I think Valerie had touched on Valerie and I had spoken about that, and Valerie right. could elaborate on that. But what before, I, before we get to that point, let me just add one more thing, which I'm thinking about. For a, a new lawyer, one of the most overlooked things that I see and I would love to see on resumes is if a lawyer has had multiple summer clerkships, I would love to know, and they should put on the resume, offer extended to come back or oh, permanent yes. offer extended Absolutely. So, that, so that the recruiter does not have to ask. Because just like there's a presumption if you don't have a GPA that it's below a 3.0, there is a presumption if you don't have something uh, indicating that an offer was extended on a summer clerkship that you didn't get an offer, and that's a red flag 
that a recruiter needs to delve into. So those, those two points, I think, should be brought home to the audience as well. Well, obviously, if you are working or your first job was where you had your summer associateship, what I'd like to see is the name of the firm and then put summer associate in the year and then associate X date to X date. Right. It shows that you got that offer. If you clerked at a top, top firm, but then you went to work for a different top firm, that does leave the question. So that's where offer extended. That's all you have to say. It makes all the difference. It makes firm. all the difference for us as recruiters and for employers. It, it just avoids us having to ask the question, and it just makes it a cleaner resume. Yes. Now, going back to the law school or college jobs, I'm a person who put herself through college and law school, so this is a, an issue near and dear to my heart. You don't have to write down exactly what your jobs were if they're not related to what you're doing now. So in other words, if you worked, say, in some sort of environmental position and you are during college and law school and you're going to be an environmental lawyer, then that is particularly relevant and you can put some details down. But if, like me, you worked at, you know, Sears Catalog Pickup, that dates me, or the phone company, um, what you put down is you can say financed X percent of college or law school expenses through concurrent employment under your college or law school entry. Could you see, and maybe this would be something would be better to come up in an interview than on the resume, but say you had a modern-day job, Valerie, of what you mentioned. I would think if somebody was going, like, to an insurance defense firm or any you know, litigation defense firm, having that experience on the floor, you know, in a, in a blue car job like that might give you some very good insight for well, depositions thing, or witnesses or whatever. Well, the thing is, if, if a... Uh, it shows that you had some sort of job, and if the employer is interested in that, they might ask about it. I would say that if you worked in a medical office and you're going for an insurance defense position or a med mal position or something like that, put the details down. Absolutely. So it depends on what you are going for. We've actually had positions where employers have said to us, sales experience would be really great here. And so we ask our candidates, do you have any sales experience? And they say, yeah, I worked for, you know, it's just sold shoes and during college. We'll have them put that on the resume. And that goes into tailoring the resume for the particular position you're you're going after. And we can talk about that a little later. Some employers would think it would be great to hire someone who sold shoes, and others might be kind of snobbish about it. So That's correct. <laughs> it um, and that comes back to knowing your client and knowing your candidate, you know. Yeah. I'm curious, typically, how long do you think a resume should be, as long as it needs to be, or have you seen some that are they're just way too many pages? We've seen way too many pages. <laughs> By, back in the day, um, the, the, and, and Valerie may appreciate this, back in the day when we did not have email, but when we only had a fax machine, the definition of my worst nightmare was getting a five-page resume followed up with a 40-page unsolicited writing sample on my fax machine. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, where, where, where it would chew up that the ribbon, the paper, and everything else. Yes, so the answer is there are many times when they're just too darn long. So what we would like to see is for a junior person, it shouldn't go longer than one page. For a more senior experienced person, two pages. If there's other material you want to present, you can put it as an addendum, such as a deal sheet showing representative matters that you've worked on or um, representative cases, especially if they were published opinions, writing if you have 
done a lot of publishing, a list of the publishing can be an addendum, or if you've done a lot of speaking, that can be on an addendum. So you can see that there's just a couple of pages, and you might say, you know, extensive publishing in legal in the legal press. And then you've got that backup material if the employer wants to look at it. Okay. Now, if you've been out of work for a while, how should you handle that on your resume? Uh, I think you know the answer is this. This kind of blends in with another with another topic we'll talk about. The answer is I think you need to handle it honestly, which is many times a good employer or a skilled recruiter is going to figure it out because unless the candidate is going to blatantly lie on the resume, which does happen, is that they're going to use just dates without months. So a candidate may say worked at one place from 2001 to 2004, but unbeknownst to you, they started the job, you know, in July of 2001 and were out of their previous job, you know, for the last six months. So the short answer is, is you know, I like resumes that have months and years, and if there are gaps, the candidate should be able to explain them up front to the, to the, to the client or the, the law firm or the employer. It's something which I don't ever advocate hiding because it's it's just going to come back to bite the candidate later. Invariably, it will be discovered in, in some of the most bizarre ways, but generally up front and just, you know, be prepared to just deal with it and discuss it on the resume and or in the interview. We, I've also seen people put, you know, 2001, 2004 full-time parent or, you know, or uh, – caregiver for ill family member or whatever it is you've got if if there are gaps on the resume it makes one wonder what was happening one of the things i do when i'm interested in the candidate and i look at a resume is i go through and i see if there are any gaps i go okay they were here there they were there there and whatever and i see if there are any gaps and then i say what were you doing in that period of time and whether they if they were unemployed they were unemployed um so often with lawyers during that period of time, they may be doing project work. And so you put down that you're doing project work. There's no shame in it. And, and, you know, even if you're unemployed, you know, it's, it's, our point is I think we, we like to err on the side of disclosure rather than non-disclosure. Um, resumes aren't the time to gloss over certain things because it's just going to create an awkward situation in an interview. And you also don't want your resume to leave questions unanswered because a a prospective employer might answer it in their own heads to the negative. And I I like to have the obvious questions answered. And I think as a recruiter, that's our job to make sure that the prospective employer understands exactly who the candidate is and what they're doing and what they can offer. A helpful tip for, for the audience would be to literally take your own resume and start literally from the beginning and work your way forward. And if, if, if there are any gaps, whether they're real or perceived, you know, you want to address them now. Literally start from the beginning and work your way to present day. That should help you alleviate this problem. It's not a hard problem to alleviate. And, yeah. are they, and I think um, prospective employers want all time from the, the date of your JD to present accounted for. So if you are a second career lawyer and you have a degree that's, you know, 20 years ago and you did something else, just a statement of 
pre-law career in insurance sales. And you can go into detail if it's relevant to what you're doing now. If it's not, good enough. Right. Um, you don't have to go into great detail on something that's completely unrelated, but you don't want to leave questions unanswered. I might call that, that category on a resume, for example, you know, other professional experience or related professional experience, prior professional experience. And as Valerie said, if it's relevant, elaborate on it. Otherwise, just account for it. All right. Now, we talked about the, how the resume actually looks, but what I have noticed is it seems like now when people apply for a job, if they know someone at the employer, they always want to use that connection if they can to perhaps have that person hand the resume off as well as applying online. What are your thoughts on that in terms of how connections fall in with getting your resume to the right person and getting it attention? I feel very, very strongly that the resume is – if you've got a good connection, the resume is going to be secondary. Um, it's the old familiar adage, it's not what you know but who you know, and I, I don't think it's any more aptly demonstrated than in the recruiting field. Many times, I'm sure Valerie's experienced this like I have, it's our relationships with clients and candidates that get things done. It's not the format of the resume per se or what's even on the resume. It's the fact that the relationship is solid enough and the trust factor is solid enough that we can make convince employers and candidates to get together, and that's where the magic happens. So connections clearly are important. I think they're fun.